You are listening to Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM. Our lawyers would like you to know that the views and opinions presented in this broadcast are not endorsed by Cortez Community Radio, its board, its membership, or any granting agency, but are those of the writer and producer. Cortez Currents presents a research and editorial feature, Fish Farms Around the World. The fish farm issue, simmering for decades on the B.C. coast, has boiled over again. In the controversy over DFO's recent decision to close down open-net Atlantic salmon farms in the Discovery Islands and Broughton Archipelago areas. Locally, the issue is mostly being discussed in terms of First Nation sovereignty versus employment, although debate continues over the scale and impact of externalities, such as sea lice infestations, chemical and biohazard effluents, etc. But I'd like to back up a bit and try to put this local conflict into a larger perspective. Fish farming is a global issue with a long history. Canada is only one minor player in the international great game of Atlantic salmon feedlots. This is such a big subject that we can't really cover it in a readable article, but we've compiled a brief bibliography of links by topic at the end of the online article, which you can find at cortezcurrents.ca. There are also many links and footnotes in the article, so readers can dig deeper. But let's put it in perspective. Where are we today? Here are a couple of quotes from Science Direct and from Alaska's Institute for Social and Economic Research. Five countries made up 95.6% of the farm salmon production in 2015. Norway is the largest, with a production share of 55.3% and is, together with Scotland, 7.6%, and the Faroe Islands, 3.3%, in Europe. The second largest producing country, Chile, 25.4%, is in South America, and Canada, 6%, in North America. There is little potential for further growth in countries such as Scotland and Ireland. Excessive regulatory pressure and conflicts with user groups also limit development in the United States and Canada. Salmon farming appears to have the brightest future in Chile due to ideal environmental conditions and a favorable business climate. Now, excessive regulatory pressure is industry speak for environmental regulation. Chile is internationally known for its weak regulatory regime, which makes it an attractive area for extractive industries with high externalized costs, such as pollution. But even B.C. is not as strongly regulated as, say, Washington State in the U.S., which has banned open net pens. This, plus our coastal geography, is one reason why B.C. is a preferred location for Norwegian-owned salmon feedlots. Feedlots? Yes. Yes, feedlots. Let's call a spade a spade. It's CAFO. A fish farm is not a farm in the sense of happy dairy cattle grazing in green meadows or any other positive association we have with the word. It's a CAFO, C-A-F-O, Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation. This agribusiness acronym describes a specific practice, keeping animals in high-density enclosures with frequent feeding, 
to fatten them for market as quickly as possible at the lowest possible cost. These are uh, feedlot fish. Biology being what it is, keeping any normally free-roaming critters captive in very dense, crowded conditions is a recipe for disease. CAFO of all kinds rely on chemical and medical inputs to maintain the health of, that is, keep on life support, the animals who are subjected to these unnatural and pathogenic conditions. For salmonids, the main pathogens fostered and amplified by their concentrated captivity are viruses and sea lice, both of which can transfer to wild populations as well as killing as much as 20% of the captive stock annually. All CAFO installations, whether aquatic or terrestrial, are trapped in an endless arms race. The conditions of captivity are the perfect lab culture for pathogens, with new strains emerging every few years resistant to the usual controls. So CAFO depends on an ever-increasing or ever-innovating chemical and medical input, antibiotics, biocides, disinfectants. Despite all this effort, annual losses are heavy. The industry calls these morts, and mort picker is a standard job at any fish feedlot. Some have even suggested that the increase in mortality for Scotland's CAFO salmon might outstrip the industry's growth rate. Needless to say, the industry has developed automated technology for mort removal. These are mostly Norwegian-designed and patented, and another source of inbound revenue for Norway's industrial sector. CAFO also seek to accelerate the growth and maturity curve by any means necessary. Pigs and steers are fed antibiotics or hormones to fatten them more quickly. Salmon are tinkered with, similarly, including genetic modification for larger overall size and faster growth. Salmon CAFO, on the Norwegian corporate model, and that is what we have here, as in Scotland and Chile, is done in open net pens, using tidal currents as no-cost cleaning. This means that all the pathogens, biocides, effluents, antibiotics, and shed biomass generated by the CAFO are released into the ocean. This use of the world's oceans as an infinite sink for industrial effluent has been traditional since the Industrial Revolution began. Despite decades of science and citizen action, it continues to be the default because it's cheaper than taking responsibility for waste products and contaminants. CAFO waste products cause problems worldwide, from lagoons of hog and cattle manure and urine contaminating soil and water tables on land, to the effluents that form a plume downstream of any open net salmon feedlot on every tide. But salmon CAFO pose one additional problem. Their livestock also make successful jailbreaks. Unlike terrestrial CAFO inmates, net pen salmon frequently escape. Chile alone may lose as many as 10 million per year. Scotland does far better, losing only 1 million over a four-year period. The impact of escaped salmon varies widely from place to place, but the consensus is they can pose a danger to wild stocks. Perhaps this is why Alaska, ever vigilant to protect its own valuable wild salmon fishery, resisted the Trump administration's push to permit open net CAFO in their waters. For all these reasons, sea lice infestations, viral outbreaks, overuse of antibiotics and biocides, effluent dumping in tidal waters, and repeated escapes, open net salmon feedlots around the world have for decades been embroiled in controversy and calls for tighter regulation and relocation.
In other words, it's not just here, and it's not just us. But what about at the grocery store? Many industry apologists mock consumers who avoid CAFO salmon when they shop or dine out. The industry claims its product is equal or even superior to wild fish, and that their mission is to feed the world and provide the cleanest, healthiest protein available. Obviously, their actual mission, like that of all corporations, is to reap the highest possible profit for their shareholders, which is what corporate law requires them to do. But aside from that, how do their claims stack up? In order to maintain that highest possible profit margin, CAFO operations feed animals with materials they would not normally eat. In the early years of salmon CAFO, the industry used wild-caught food fish, such as sardines, rendered into fish meal. Estimates at the time, and I was writing on this subject about 15 years ago, were that it took between four and six pounds of wild-caught fish to grow one pound of marketable salmon. So the lower end of the food chain, the small fry, was being stripped by factory trawling to be converted into fish meal to feed to caged salmon. Obviously, there were problems with this model. Uh, pulling the small fish out from under the ocean food chain can lead to collapse. Strip mining coastal waters around the world for salmon feed was usurping food fisheries on which local people depended. Faced with mounting criticisms based on this net-negative nutritional math, the salmon CAFO industry started to turn to vegetable content, mostly soy protein and GMO rapeseed oil. This relieved some pressure on small fish populations, but then contributed indirectly to deforestation for industrial soy plantations though some family-owned salmon CAFO have sourced their soy more sustainably. They also broadened the market for GMO canola, accelerating the displacement of open-pollinated crops with patented corporate property. Switching to commodity crops for salmon feed base also means that the aquaculture industry is now competing with other food production for available agricultural acreage. While a couple of decades ago we were told that farming the sea was going to reduce the pressure on limited farmland, soil, and water, it has now become an additional pressure on agricultural capacity, a new increment to the percentage of commodity crops and water we are already devoting to feedlots for beef and pork. So it's unclear in the long view how much longer a growing human population can continue to consume high-status foods like beef and salmon. Already, human-owned animals dominate the world. Of all the mammal biomass on Earth, wild animals were only 4.2 percent as of 2018, and the single most numerous bird species on the planet is the domestic chicken. Our food requirements, our farming practices, are major extinction drivers. We now consume more seafood from farmed stock than wild-caught stock, which the aquaculture industry assured us would relieve the pressure on overfished wild species. But if the UK is a meaningful precedent, the end of the BC salmon feedlot story could well be no wild population left at all. From BBC News, 2019. In supermarkets, the packaging shows pristine Scottish waters and projects an image of a clean and natural product. But look at the small print and you will see that all Scottish salmon is farmed. Wild salmon is no longer fished commercially anywhere in the UK. Instead, hundreds of thousands of fish at a time are raised in pens suspended in the open sea locks around Scotland's west coast and the Northern Isles. 
The salmon will swim around inside the pens for up to two years before being harvested for our dinner plates. From just a couple of sites about 50 years ago, more than 200 fish farms now operate in Scotland, producing more than 150,000 tons of salmon a year. So there is a tangle of ethical issues surrounding CAFO in general, and salmon CAFO in particular. But then there is still the consumer point of view. Is feedlot fish a good deal? Is it safe to eat? Can I get diseases from it? The industry often claims that it is producing the healthiest protein on earth. How reliable is their claim? Feedlot salmon are real enough, for a given value of real. It's true that their color is carefully maintained by supplements. They don't have access to the plankton, the shrimp, and other organisms whose bodies contain compounds that give wild salmon its distinctive, rich tint. They are fed a colorant manufactured from the same marine organisms that wild salmon would eat. This is a fairly expensive component of their fodder, although earlier synthetic dyes were even more expensive. Their flesh would otherwise be a neutral gray, which most consumers would reject at the grocery store or on their plate. By the way, if you buy some smoked salmon at the supermarket and the color is only skin deep or it comes off on your fingers, it's probably cheap chum that's been surface dyed. Most feedlot salmon is colored throughout. But whatever the color, is feedlot Atlantic salmon nutritionally equivalent to wild Pacific salmon? Well, apart from having about triple the saturated fat content, it's quite comparable. Some studies have found higher levels of dioxins and PCBs in feedlot fish than in wild salmon. However, these results may vary considerably depending on local conditions. Feedlot fish are probably safe to eat. Despite having been raised in such overcrowded, some would say inhumane, conditions. Piscine viruses do not so far jump to human hosts, and sea lice are a large, visible parasite removed before marketing. They're not some tiny organism that could infect salmon eaters. So the main difference between feedlot salmon and wild salmon is not so much to our plate or our wallet, but to our principles and the overall health of our ecosystems and our economy. If consumers choose wild salmon when they shop, it's more of an ethical than a nutritional decision. Wild salmon is no longer fished commercially anywhere in the UK. As a precedent, this should alarm and distress us. The environmental impact of removing a keystone species like wild salmon is incalculable. BC's coastal forest ecosystem, not just the marine food chain, depends on wild salmon. There are too many stressors already on our wild population. Overfishing, logging, warming waters, adding parasite load and viral diseases could just be the last straw. The supermarket choice we face is whether to invest in or not invest in a burgeoning global industry and its operating paradigm which at present seem likely to result in the commercial extinction of our wild salmon. But most of us know very little about this industry. Who and what are we investing in when we buy feedlot salmon? Who are we dealing with? The fish farm concept originated in Norway at a place called Hitra in 1970, to be precise, and the industry is still almost wholly owned and controlled by two or three very large Norwegian transnational corporations. Moe and Surmac are on that list. We should bear in mind always that their Canadian operations are only a small local arm of an immense global corporate enterprise. 
This lends some heavy irony to the industry's more heated propaganda efforts, one of which describes wild salmon activists as, quote, financed in part by foreign funds and politically connected business people. While the uh, foreign-funded and politically well-connected feedlot fish industry does employ locals in every country where it operates to manage the farms and do the dirty jobs, the bulk of profits do not accrue to the host country. This is an extractive industry. For scale, Moi has about 30% of the world market for feedlot salmon. Its gross revenue for 2019 was over $4 billion, with a B, dollars. Cermak, which for some reason is now owned by Mitsubishi, is a smaller player with only $1.1 billion in revenue. Moi is still the alpha gorilla in the living room of CAFO salmon. Unsurprisingly, they are one of the most aggressive companies and often cited in complaints. From Wikipedia, Maui's operations have been severely affected in the south of Chile, where millions of fish have died by the disease infectious salmon anemia. The rapid propagation of the virus has motivated the enterprise to sell some of its facilities, firing more than a thousand employees, with the aim of moving its installations further south to the Asayan region. Parasitic, viral, and fungal infections are all disseminated when the fish are stressed and the centers are too close together, and a spokesman for Marine Harvest recognized that his company was using too many antibiotics in Chile and the fish pens were too close, contributing to the dissemination of the ISA virus. Norwegian scientist Ari Nyland has suggested that Marine Harvest introduced the ISA virus to the region by importing infected eggs from Norway. In January 2017, Private Eye reported that Maui had been depositing large quantities of the insecticide Azimethophos into Scottish waters to control sea lice in salmon. The Global Alliance Against Industrial Aquaculture called for the drug to be banned, citing risks to other species. Maui has been responsible for the majority of an estimated 400 kilograms of the insecticide placed into Scottish waters in 2016. While Moe's promotional materials often extol the high-quality, immaculate growing conditions and sustainability of Norwegian farmed salmon, it appears that these claims only apply to the home industry in Norway itself, where it's far more tightly regulated and policed than anywhere else in the world. Elsewhere, it's the Wild West. Elsewhere in the world, Marine Harvest, Moe's previous name, became a sufficiently tarnished brand that they felt a need to relabel it. And this leads us to the Battle of BC. As the industry's externalities became more obvious and legislators worldwide moved towards higher environmental standards and tighter regulation, the industry did what industry does. It started to fight a rearguard action in countries where regulation was slack or had not yet caught up with the issues, such as Canada. Particularly in Norway, a public and political will was clearly manifest as early as 2011 to green the CAFO salmon industry. Norwegian feedlot salmon corporations have been moving actively in their home country to comply, investing hugely in both offshore and land-based alternatives to open net pens in wild salmon habitat. But elsewhere in the world, 
they continue to fight, delay, and obstruct regulation in an effort to maintain their open net pen operations as long as possible. In Canada, the Harper government as late as 2014 encouraged expansion of open net salmon feedlots, and the industry invested accordingly. It's unsurprising that they're now fighting to preserve that investment, or at least to drag their feet long enough to amortize a chunk of it. In every country where open net salmon CAFO has been established, the same pattern has emerged. Resident salmon stocks have been reduced, and the overall health of remaining stocks has declined. In every location, citizen opposition inevitably begins to grow as the environmental costs are first noticed, then measured and documented. Local anglers, fishers, and environmentalists commonly form organizations and take action to oppose the open net CAFO model, demanding that their governments do something about it. The ensuing script is familiar by now, whether we're looking at mining, petroleum, industrial agriculture, tobacco, or any other high-profit sector with expensive externalities. Predictably, local citizen groups are outspent and outpoliticked by the transnational corporate entities, whose pockets are for all intents and purposes infinitely deep. Predictably, the industry hires PR pros to churn out reams of pro-industry advertorial, and tame scientists to dispute the findings of government panels, independent academics, and citizen scientists. Predictably, the industry attacks its critics, attempting to discredit them. The more threatened it feels, the more public opinion starts to tip against it, the more personal and vicious the attacks become. Rachel Carson is now considered a heroine of Anglophone history. Her book, Silent Spring, sounded the alarm on the grotesque overuse of DDT and its impact on bird populations. It's often regarded as the founding document of modern environmentalism. But few now remember the defamation campaign against her that was the pesticide marketer's last resort. Well, history certainly rhymes. Our own local salmon activist, Alexandra Morton, is repeatedly dismissed and defamed in the feedlot salmon industry PR website, Sea West News. Their lead writer, Fabian Dawson, goes so far as to refer to her dogged defense of wild salmon as conspiracy theory, and even compares it with QAnon. The tabloid quality of their coverage extends to any opponent of open net CAFO. Sea West News claims that First Nations activists, for example, are manipulating treaty rights in a quest for cash. The intense hostility of these editorials from Sea West News suggests to me that the industry knows that the writing is on the wall and reform is imminent. This pattern of discovery, documentation, calls for reform, and industry pushback has recurred in every area where open net salmon CAFO has been established. BC is not a special case. We're just one more place experiencing a colonial extractive dynamic, selected for exploitation because of our natural advantages and our relatively weak legislative environment. I'm calling this relationship colonial, even though it involves non-native Canadians, because that's the most accurate technical term for a system in which natural resources in one part of the world are used up to generate profits elsewhere in the world. The resources being used up in BC are, in essence, our wild salmon stocks and the health of our nearshore marine ecosystems. It's cheaper to use them up for free than to take the costly route of operating salmon feedlots more responsibly. 
Meanwhile, the lion's share of profits accrue to Norway-based foreign-owned corporations. And the Campbell River area gets, allegedly, 1,500 jobs. I would call that crumbs from the overlord's table. It's a symptom of how hollowed-out North American economies have become over the last 30-plus years of neoliberalism. Those 1,500 jobs look attractive enough to trade for a keystone of both our marine and forest ecosystems. Classical colonial extraction dynamics invariably include a comprador class of local people. These individuals are offered employment and even a share of the profits in exchange for their cooperation with the extractive industry, whether as labor, middlemen, or enforcers. This comprador class serves as a highly motivated buffer between the impacted population and the extractive industry's real foreign ownership. The functionality of this model is pretty clearly on display, as local settler governments and CAFO employees go to bat against their own domestic regulators and reformers at the federal level to preserve and extend an industry that is actually removing real wealth and prosperity from their country. So far, only First Nations groups and embattled environmentalists seem to realize that essential wealth is being removed and very little received in return. In recent decades, weak neoliberal governments and vast concentrations of wealth have encouraged large corporations to consider themselves equal to, or even more powerful than, sovereign nations. The latest chapter in the feedlot salmon wars, Moe, Cermak, and Grieg have filed suit against the Canadian government, claiming they did not have sufficient notice of the proposed closures in our area, nor any opportunity to respond to the case against their operations, and therefore the federal decision to protect B.C. wild salmon by removing the most dangerously situated feedlots should be set aside. It seems pretty clear to me that the case against their operations has been adequately documented worldwide, not just in B.C., for going on two decades. What they really want is to go on treating B.C. as a backward colonial outpost with a weak, complicit comprador government. Under the Harper regime, that was exactly what they were dealing with. Let us hope that the Trudeau Jr. era is a different um, kettle of fish. But what is our local government track record? In 2008, early studies had already documented the potential dangers of open net pen CAFO in B.C. waters. But in 2009, the SRD Rural Directors approved the location of open net CAFO in the most vulnerable waters in our local area, the route through which migrating salmon pass when they return to spawn. During the current controversy, as Roy Hales uncovers in his recent article, both the Campbell River City Council and SRD read into their minutes exclusively submissions from the Salmon Feedlot Corporations and their local proponents. A quick search of the SRD minutes revealed six items from CERMAC Canada since late 2018, but none from scientists critical of fish farms. The City of Campbell River minutes were even more revealing. There were 56 entries for Moe Canada West, 50 for CERMAC Canada, and 41 for Griggs Seafood BC Limited. By way of contrast, there were no direct communications from critics of the industry, like independent biologist Alexander Morton, Stan Probish from the Watershed Watch Salmon Society, or Christy Miller-Saunders, head of the DFO's Molecular Genetics Laboratory at the Pacific Biological Station in Nanaimo. These are the same elected officials who presently complain that the federal government did not properly consult them or consider their point of view. 
but they themselves did not solicit, receive, or read in any arguments from wild salmon defenders, First Nations, or even area residents whose livelihoods depend on wild salmon, even though this issue has been openly and loudly controversial for 15 years. Those who are presently agitating for the continuation, even the expansion, of open-net salmon CAFOs situated directly on the migratory routes of BC's remaining wild salmon are positioning themselves on the wrong side of history. They were on the wrong side of history in 2009, and they have apparently learned nothing since. So going forward, what are the alternatives? The salmon feedlot business in BC is exploiting a global backwater, dragging its feet in an attempt to squeeze out a few more cheap years from the irresponsible net pen model. TASS's Mayor Martin Davis accurately described it as an obsolete and environmentally harmful technology. But obsolete and harmful technologies traditionally continue to be used in colonial backwaters long after they're banned at home. However, elsewhere in the world, interest and investment is surging in RAS technology, in recirculating aquaculture systems. In these systems, water is recirculated and filtered rather than allowed to flow through carrying biohazards and chemicals away with it. Our own Namgis Nation has a pilot project underway. BC government has been clearly signaling its intention to move away from open net pens for several years now. Land-based operations are increasing at a rate described as, quote, alarming, unquote, by industry website salmonbusiness.com. The probable future of fish CAFO for all species is land-based, though there are also proposals for large-scale offshore salmon feedlots safely distant from wild fish migration routes. It's unclear how these will be maintained in face of increasingly violent global weather conditions and whether the enormous cost of construction will render them unprofitable. Not everyone is convinced they will be that much of an improvement, but there are investors. A more radical a more ethical solution, of course, would be for humans simply to stop eating a top predator fish like salmon and browse lower on the food chain. Farming salmon is essentially farming wolves rather than cows. Salmon are not placid herbivores, but far-ranging adventurous carnivores. They're a near-apex species, just one step down from charismatic warm-blooded predators like seals, sea lions, and orcas. Unfortunately, the initial enormous wealth of the wild salmon stocks of the world, recklessly exploited for over a century, accustomed billions of human beings to regard this species, along with tuna, as the fish, all lesser species being considered inferior. The fish feedlot industry picked up the slack to meet global demand as the overexploited wild stocks started to fail, possibly triggering a Jevons paradox. But we're stuck with it for the moment. Appetite for salmon as a standardized commodity product has now been firmly established around the world. Unfortunately, through the narrow monetarist lens of the investors and managers who own and run the world's largest fish CAFO corporations, those failing stock of wild salmon look less distressing than they would to you or to me. From where they sit, that decline looks more like the elimination of a competitive product and an increase in market share. There is no downside for them in destroying wild salmon stocks. But there's a huge downside for BC. There is no motive for the salmon CAFO megacorporations to play nice. And it's unlikely that we'll convince humanity to lay off the salmon dinners anytime soon. 
So the practical alternative is to regulate and police the industry at least as closely as its home country of Norway currently does, to bring BC into the modern era and out of its colonial backwater status, to honor First Nations treaty rights, food fisheries, and territorial sovereignty, and to use governance and law to force the salmon CAFO corporations to clean up their act. You have been listening to Cortez Currents on Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM. This program is also available in text form with links on our website at cortezcurrents.ca. Once again, the views and opinions presented in this program are not endorsed by Cortez Community Radio, its board, its membership, or any granting agency, but are those of the writer and producer. Thanks for listening.